title of the sermon this morning is Here I Am to Worship. You know, worship is one of those words that we use often in the church, but I, I wonder sometimes if we really understand what the word worship really means. If you go on to the Burlington Christian Church website, you see in there that the, at 1030 you have a worship gathering. And it goes on to say, our worship gathering is Christ-focused using a modern worship style, a blend of contemporary and traditional. And so what we are experiencing right now, we're in the middle of, is what we call the worship gathering. Many people call it different things. Some people call it a worship encounter, uh, worship service. Whatever we call it, the idea is that every Sunday, millions of Christians come together for the purpose of worshiping God. They meet together in many kinds of congregations. There's big ones, there's small ones, there's city congregations, country congregations. Some meet in multi-million dollar auditoriums. Some meet in rented facilities. Some have loud worship services. Some prefer a more contemplative atmosphere. Some churches sing only traditional hymns. Some sing only contemporary worship choruses. And I guess some will have, like Burlington, will have a blend of both traditional and contemporary. And I guess some even call in special groups to come in and lead in worship. And I could go on and on just naming all the different types of worship services that are going on right now throughout our nation. And in spite of the, all the differences, I believe that it comes down to, to one common denominator. And that is that we have all come together to worship Christ. All these worshipers fall into two different categories. Those that have a worshipful experience and those who simply go through the motions. And I believe that almost all of the ones that fall into that first category, those who have a worshipful experience, are the ones that fall, I guess, into the other category, who, who just go through the motions, desire to be in that first group, which is to have a worshipful experience. I mean, why else would they come to church? And so when we come together in a group like this, and we call it worship, we're coming together hoping that we'll be able to focus our minds and our hearts upon Christ. But there are so many obstacles for us to be able to do that. And so we're sitting here and we're, we're, we're listening and we're participating in worship with the songs that we're singing, and yet our minds are somewhere else. We're thinking about some of the challenges that we have maybe this week at work. We have other things that are going through our minds about family issues that are going on in our, in our home and, 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 and things that can, can get us sidetracked and, and, and keep us from focusing upon Christ and what He has done for us. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to, to go back and I want us to look at, an, at something that happened with Isaiah. And before we do that, I want to give you some background material because I think it will help us to understand what Isaiah encountered, but not only did what Isaiah encountered, but kind of the, the circumstances of the times. And because of the circumstances of the times, I think that Isaiah did something that we need to do. So let's go back and look at the history of this. Isaiah and his people had lived through some good times under the rule of the king at the time, whose name was Uzziah. Now, Uzziah had come... Uh, to the throne at the age of 16. So he's pretty young when he came, and he ruled for 52 years. Now, King Uzziah reigned during the ministries of the prophets Hosea, Isaiah, Amos, and Isaiah. And the Bible says that King Uzziah did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And as he did the things that were right in the sight of the Lord, the Lord blessed him. And so 
it goes on to say that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. And again, as long as he followed what the Lord wanted to do, God was going to bless him. Prosperity was enjoyed in all areas of his life. First of all, politically, Uzziah's leadership had, had resulted in amazing successes. His armies had won over some pretty formidable foes in the Philistines and the Ammonites. His projects and programs were successful. He built towers, dug many cisterns because he had much livestock, the Bible says. And, and, and he had those in the plain. He had people working his fields and his vineyards and he could do nothing wrong. What an inviolable position he had militarily. Uzziah's leadership was superb. He was an amazing military mind, organized, prepared, and inventive. He had a well-trained uh, army of over 300,000 men, and he provided shields and bows and sling stones for the entire army. He invented a, um, and made devices for use upon the towers and the corner defenses so that the soldiers could shoot down arrows and throw down huge stones on the enemy. Everyone studied his maneuvers and learned brilliant strategies of warfare from him. Personally, Uzziah's fame spread throughout the then entire world. He was famous and recognized his strength was envied by other kings. And because of all this success and the view that people had of Uzziah, he became very proud. And so Uzziah became, uh, decided one day to enter the temple of the Lord so that he could burn incense on the altar of incense. Now that was something that was reserved only for the priests. But Uzziah went into the, into, uh, the temple and he's getting ready to offer this um, incense on the altar. And as he goes in, he is followed by Azariah the high priest along with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord. And they confronted Uzziah when he got into the temple and they said, Uzziah, you should not be in here. You're not, you're not one of the priests. You're not one of the ones who have been authorized to offer this incense upon the altar and Uzziah's rage began to, to, to rise up and he had this, this um, uh, light that he was getting ready to, to, to light the, the, um, the incense. And as he gets ready to do that, leprosy breaks out in his forehead. And the priest and all the, ones, all the priests looked at him and, and, and hurried him out because he said, listen, God has spoken, God has judged you. And as he's taking him out, Uzziah himself was ready to go too. Because you don't go into the presence of a holy God when you've got leprosy. And so the Bible goes on to tell us that Uzziah lived the remaining years of his life in isolation, away from everybody because he had leprosy until he died. So you look at that and you say, you know, the people of Israel had a pretty important place in history. They were, they were very successful at this time. Uzziah is leading them and they're looking toward Uzziah as their king and they're, they're in a good place. But then Uzziah dies. Now what do you do? There's uncertainty about what comes next. And I think in our world that we can really identify, we can identify with what Uzziah and, 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 and or, uh, Isaiah and his people were going through, can't we? I mean, there's uncertainty about our own nation. We're, we're, we don't know what to expect. Corporations are downsizing. It seems that we might be on the cusp of war. Random acts of violence and shootings that are taking place all over the place. And many people are living in fear. Everything seems to be changing right before our eyes and we have a difficult time coping with everything that is going on in our lives. 
We're uncertain what the future holds. We have demands on our time, financial stress, job stress, all kinds of challenges in our lives. And it's questionable if the leaders of our country are seeking God. They disagree and they don't even seem to take into consideration what God might want from them as leaders of a, God, a, a country that was founded on principles that put God as, as the sovereign. Everything that is of God seems to be under attack, doesn't it? We're living in a time when we no longer know what to expect. And listen, there are many, many things that can be obstacles to our worship. Maybe for some of us, an obstacle that we have is doubt or fear or confusion or unconfessed sin. Whatever the cause, there are many Christians who want the worship service to be a dynamic experience, but week after week they go home feeling empty and bored. And the amazing thing is that there will be people that come and they go home feeling empty and bored, and in the same service there will be people that will leave saying, man, that was a great worship service, wasn't it? Good to be in the presence of God. One pastor told of two diametrically opposed opinions that he heard one Sunday after the exact same worship service. He said the first one was a new member that came through and uh, that new member came through, shook his hand and said, Pastor, that was one of the greatest worship services I've ever been in. I really felt the presence of God. And an old time member came through and said, you know what, the instruments ruined worship for me this morning. And the pastor said, could you believe that they were in the same worship service? And I want to just point this out that the first element that we need to understand, the most important element in our ability to worship God is the heart of the person worshiping. Jesus said in John 4, but the day or the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is looking for people who are, who are attuned to what God wants, have their hearts purified before Him, are wanting to worship and glorify His name. God is looking for people to worship Him. Do you not want to be part of those people that God finds when He's looking for people who will worship Him? We will worship Him in spirit and in truth. The Bible te teaches us about what true worship is all about. And with this as our background... Isaiah does something that I think that we should do. When we come to that place where we don't know what, what the future holds, we're at a place of uncertainty. We're maybe at a place of doubt or fear. Or maybe there's some sin that's involved in our life. What we need to do is we need to go and get into the presence of God. Isaiah went to the temple to pray and to seek direction and comfort. And so... While he is there in the temple, something happens that I believe will help us understand a little bit more about worship. As he is praying near the altar, he saw a vision that would literally change his life. And we get a glimpse into this intimate moment when we turn to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And this is going to be our passage of Scripture for the day. And let's look at this. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 and 8. It will be on the screen here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord... Sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for me? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power that is seen there. Lord, I thank you for our vision to be able to get into um, and see this encounter that you had with Isaiah. Father, I pray that it will be a reminder of us to what true worship really means. I pray that our hearts will be open to hear what you have to say to us today, Father, that we would take these words that are spoken, not my words, but the words that are spoken through your word, and that they would pierce our hearts, or that they would, they would just challenge us in our own lives to get our lives right, to understand who God is, who you are, Lord, and that we would understand who we are, and that through that we would be able to glorify you, uplift you, and praise you, and be used by you. So, Father, to that end, we pray that you would guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah's vision was dramatic. He saw God sitting on the throne. He heard the creatures singing praises and he smelled the smoke that filled the temple. It was a once in a lifetime experience and one that he would never forget. Now he knew God was God. And although earthly kings may come and go like Uzziah had just died, although earthly kings may come and go, one thing held true, and that is the holiness of God. The first thing I want us to see and notice in this area of worship for, uh, from this encounter is that, number one, worship is an act of reverence. Look at this. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple above Him, stood the seraphim, each had six wings. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. There are two extreme attributes of God's nature. Uh, one extreme is the transcendence of God. Now the transcendence of God is the fact that God is above and beyond anything earthly, natural, and finite. So you have the transcendence of God, but you also have the eminence of God. And the eminence of God is the fact that God is present in every part and moment of the created universe. And Psalm 138.6 says this, and I think it kind of brings these two aspects together. For the, though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly. And it brings those two aspects or those two attributes of God together. But it seems like nowadays the emphasis in our churches is on the nature of God being eminent. That God is with us. That God um, is, you know, Christian ministers and teachers emphasize that He is our friend. He is our personal Savior. We sing songs like He walks with me and He talks with me and He tells me that I am His own. Now, while all that is true, the fact is that, broadly speaking, we have not given proper emphasis to the other end of the spectrum of God's nature, 
we have not talked enough about His holiness, about His awesomeness, about His majesty. He has created us with a desire to praise Him, to worship Him. He's seeking those who would worship Him. In fact, that is the meaning of the word worship. It literally means to attribute worth to. To worth-ship. And so we're attributing worth to God in our singing. You see, the worship service is not about you. It's not about your preferences. And you hear this in churches all the time. We're having a battle over what kind of worship style we should have. Worship is not about you. It's not about what you prefer. It's really about you getting your heart right so that we can proclaim the worth of our God. That we can say, God, you are worthy of our praise. And Julie did an excellent job this morning of getting us into the throne room of God that we might be able to see Him in His glory. And to be able to say, God, we lift You up. We proclaim Your worth. See, the worship service is all about God and who He is. And to proclaim His worth. I don't think there's anything that we do that is more important when we come together as believers in Christ than to proclaim the worthiness of of our God. You know, some theologians have described God as holy other with a W, W H O L L Y, holy other, entirely other, meaning that God is not one of us. He's not like us. He's beyond anything that we could imagine, greater than we can comprehend, more magnificent than we could ever describe. He is good beyond description, powerful beyond description, holy beyond description. He is completely independent of this world and His involvement with humanity is purely by choice and not the result of any limitation on His part. He is holy or entirely other. And Isaiah recognized This aspect of God's character, when he saw the Lord, he was overcome with an awareness of God's, first of all, his majesty. That word majesty is a word that we don't hear too much more in the church. I remember the old old songs, majesty, worship his majesty, you know. And, and, And we used to sing about the majesty, but I think in some ways that we've missed what majesty really means. Because I think, when I hear the word majesty, I think of king, royalty. You know, and, 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 you know, and they would refer to the king, your majesty. And they would bow down and they would say, your majesty. And when you think about that, Isaiah is dealing with the people who have looked toward a king, King Uzziah, for all these years to lead them. And he has led them. And every time that he, he looked for God and, and, and tried to seek God in, in his desire, he was successful. And people looked up to him. And they probably bowed down to him and said, Oh, king. But Isaiah comes into the throne room of God. And he says immediately, Listen, I saw the Lord. Sitting on a throne. Now I've seen Uzziah sitting on his throne, but this was different. This is something different. He was sitting on his throne, high and lifted up above all kingdoms, above all uh, the kings, above everything else. I saw God sitting upon his throne. And he recognized the majesty of God, that God was so much more than any earthly king that they had ever seen. He also recognized God's greatness. The next word, the word, greatness. And he said, and the, ro- the train of his robe filled the temple. I don't know if you've read all about Solomon's temple. But Solomon's temple was magnificent. David wanted to build this temple for God, but God said, no, you're a man of blood, you can't do it. But David made all the preparations for his son Solomon to be able to build this great structure, the temple. 
And if you listen to it described, you realize that the temple was a great, great structure. It was huge. It was beautiful. It was ornate. And then Isaiah, when he's trying to describe God, says, Listen, you think this temple is great? I saw the Lord and His train, the train of His robe filled the temple. I mean, just the train of... I'm not talking about Him. I'm talking about the train of His robe filled the temple with His glory. And Isaiah recognizes the greatness of God. Then he goes on and he sees the supremacy of God. Above Him stood the seraphim. Now the seraphim are heavenly creatures. And I, heard one, I read one commentary uh, that said, hey, they covered their face and they covered their feet and with two wings they flew. They had six wings. And the reason they covered their face is because they can't look at the holiness of God. He says, look, when we look up, I saw heavenly creatures. But even the heavenly creatures are bowing down to Him. They're covering themselves because they can't, they can't look at His holiness. He is supreme. He is above all. Then He goes on to talk about His holiness. These seraphim were saying to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And listen, when we, when we send an email or we kind of communicate to somebody in print, what we'll do is, man, we'll bold that thing, we'll italicize that thing, we'll, we'll capitalize that thing, we'll do exclamation point at the end, and we're, we let people know, man, we're emphasizing this. And the way that, that you emphasize something in the Bible is you repeat it. And the seraphim are saying over and over and over again, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And he also recognized God's glory. He said not only does his train fill the temple, but the whole earth is full of his glory. I don't know, man. I... I can only imagine what Isaiah felt in the presence of God Himself. But you see, worship begins with reverence for God. This means having the right attitude toward God, towards God. He is not the big guy or the man upstairs or some impersonal higher power. He is the absolute God, absolute holiness, absolute love, absolute judgment, absolute mercy. And He is worthy of all of our praise and our adoration. In Revelation 1, when John was in the presence of Jesus, the Bible says that he fell at his feet as dead. Amazing. Can I say this morning that we have lost our reverence for God? We've lost our reverence in this country. We've lost this reverence in our churches and we've lost this reverence in our personal lives. I want you to notice what happens next to Isaiah. After he is overcome with a sense of reverence for a holy God, he is overcome with a sense of his own unworthiness. This leads to the second element of worship that I see in this. Worship is an act of confession. In the presence of absolute holiness, Isaiah became intensely aware of his own inadequacy. He says in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah felt unworthy. And I feel safe to say that if we were in the presence of Isaiah, many of us would feel unworthy because he was a spokesman for God. 
He was seeking God. He came into his presence, and yet his response was, I am a sinful man. There's nothing surprising about that because most of us feel unworthy in the presence of the holy. Simon Peter had a similar encounter and reaction to Jesus as as John did and as Isaiah did. Jesus told Simon Peter, listen, won't you put out a little bit further and put your nets down? And Simon Peter responded and said, well, Lord, listen, we've been fishing all night. We haven't caught a thing. But because you say so, because you tell us to, we'll do it. The Bible goes on to tell us that their nets engulfed such a, a large number of fish as they were pulling the fish into the boat, the nets began to break. Not only that, there were so many fish involved in that that as they brought the fish into the boat, the boat began to sink. And then the Bible tells us that Peter fell on his knees before God saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, the closer you get to God, the more unworthy you feel. Many people have said to me, I'm trying to live a Christian life, but it just seems like I'm not getting anywhere. Listen, the closer you get to God, the more you see your filth. Here's Isaiah, a great prophet of God, but he came into the presence of God and he confessed. First of all, he said, listen, I am unworthy. Woe is me. I have nothing to stand on. In the presence of a holy God, I have nothing to offer. I don't have any excuse. Woe is me. I'm lost because I've sinned. He said, listen, particularly, I'm a man of unclean lips. Listen, those lips were proclaiming the Word of God. I don't know exactly why Isaiah picked that, that particular thing, but he realized in the presence of God that even his lips were unclean before a holy God. And he said, I am a sin because I am by nature a sinner. He said, I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah recognized that his guilt was genuine. He recognized that he was guilty not only because he was unclean, but because he lived with a group of people that were unclean as well. Isaiah's response to this awareness of his own worthiness was just like Simon Peter's confession. The word confess in Greek is a compound word, homologio, taken from homo, meaning the same, and logio, to speak or to say. And literally it means to speak or to say the same thing. And when it comes to confession, we're speaking or saying the same thing that God says about us when we confess to Him. God, I am unworthy. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And when God gets a hold of your heart and He reveals to you the area that you need to repent of and you confess that to Him, the Bible tells us if we will confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the confession is key to the forgiveness of sins. And so Peter experienced that. Isaiah experienced that. Lord, I'm going to confess my sin. This is my sin. I am a man of unclean lips. Peter, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And as we confess, God will send His grace, which is the third point I want us to see in this area of worship. Worship is an act of grace. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin 
atone for. Listen, worship is not something that we do on our own for God. Hear me. We cannot worship without His help. We cannot worship without His grace. And the simple definition of grace is undeserved mercy. When Isaiah admitted his own sinfulness, the angel touched the coal to his lips. And this is symbolic of what Christ has done for us. The thing that he confessed to God is the thing that the angel took the coal and touched and said, I've cleansed that. And as we confess, I think, our sins, I I mean, when we name them, when we come out and we name them, God is going to cleanse us in those areas. See, through His death, our sins have been blotted out. We have been cleansed and our guilt has departed. Hebrews 10.10 10 says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See, toward the end of Jesus' ministry, He did something for the disciples that we look at many times. I don't think we fully comprehend what's taking place. It was an expression of His love. He washed each of the disciples' feet. And when he came to Peter, Peter said, No, 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 Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus responded and said, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. See, I think Peter understood something at that moment. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. The lesson is that we can only be made worthy by an act of God's grace. There is nothing that we can do to deserve His mercy. We can only receive it. And we must receive His grace if we want to have a relationship with Him, if we really, truly want to worship Him. It's important to realize that experiencing God's grace is an ongoing process in our life. I mean, we, I think we do that. We experience His grace immediately when we give our life to Him. And, and, and through the act of, uh, of baptism and all those things, we, we understand the grace of God that this is not anything that we deserve, that we're responding and receiving what God is offering. But there's an ongoing process. It's something that we must continue to do. We must continue to confess and receive the grace of God. And then number four, worship is an act of service. Verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then Isaiah responded, Here am I. Send me. That's why I titled this sermon, Here I Am, to worship. If you've really worshipped, if you leave with an attitude of submission to God, you will be willing to do whatever God wants you to do. Worship is more than just singing a few songs and listening to a sermon. It's more than just following a ritual. Worship is a lifestyle. When two people get married, they they vow to love and honor and cherish one another until they are separated by death. And the success of the marriage is dependent upon the people's commitment to this vow. It doesn't matter how much money was spent on the ceremony. It doesn't matter what color the bridesmaids' dresses were. It doesn't matter how many were in attendance. There are, these are irrelevant. The wedding ceremony is not the marriage. If the bride and the groom aren't serious about the wedding vow, then the whole event is a charade and a waste of everybody's time. Because a good marriage is not determined by a fancy wedding ceremony. It is determined by a love commitment that the bride and groom have for each other. In the same way, 
the beautiful music that we've heard this morning, participated in, the prayers, the scripture reading, the preaching, are nothing more than pomp and circumstance. If you leave without a stronger commitment to serve God this week. Paul said in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, worship is not a one-day-a-week event. It's a lifestyle. It's an offering of ourselves to God to say, God, I want to be used by you. Here I am. Send me. You know, it is only when we become com- completely aware of the reverence of God, completely aware of our own unworthiness, that we can receive the grace of God and then we can be on task for Him. That's what worship is. In conclusion, let's read this right here. True worship begins with a clear vision of who God is, reverence, a proper perspective of who we are, confession, an understanding and acceptance of God's grace and an offering of our lives in service. So what are the next steps? If I really want to understand what it means to worship, and God is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth, if I'm going to be included in that number, what are the steps I need to take? Number one, we need to see God in His full glory. And listen, I don't think the world is going to see Him unless the church gets this right. And when the church gets this right and we understand the reverence of God and we begin to revere Him the way that He should be revered, then the world will begin to take notice how we are viewing God. And instead of emphasizing just the eminence of God that God is with us, that we would emphasize the transcendence of God, that God is above everything, above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and every created thing. God is above all. We need to revere His name. We need to revere His person. And number two, we need to recognize our own unworthiness. I hear so many people giving reason why. They're not living up to what God wants them to. Reason why they're allowing sin in their life. They don't want to hear that what they're doing is wrong. They want you to accept them for who they are and just let them live. But listen, we need to get to the place that we recognize our own unworthiness. We're not blessed by God because we deserve it. Mm. We're blessed by God in spite of ourselves. In spite of the things that we have done. In spite of the sins that we have committed. God loves us deeply number three we need to receive God's grace don't let the sin that is involved in your life separate you from your God realize that Christ has already paid the debt for that he has already paid the price tag that it takes for us to have a relationship with God God desires that we live in relationship with him and so we need to receive God's grace and then number four We need to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to Him. And I don't think we can do that until we've done the other three. We've got to recognize and revere God. We need to recognize our own unworthiness. We need to confess our sins that we might receive the grace of God. And then from there, we offer ourselves. God, I'm here to worship. I want to worship you, God. 
if you truly want to worship Him, before you offer yourself in that position of worship, go through these steps. And I'm wondering, when we call a worship service or worship experience or worship gathering like you do here at Burlington, do we fully comprehend what it means